Thank you, Steve and choir. I absolutely love hearing this choir sing and the orchestra, hearing you sing. It blesses me. Thank you so much. Well, today we're going to continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. We are in chapter number 6. And Jesus there mentions to us two potential areas of temptation. The first concerns personal piety. And the examples that he gave there were uh, the giving of alms, prayer, and fasting. The temptation for us in those religious exercises is that we do them in order to be seen of men. So that is the first temptation he warns us about. The second concerns our relationship to the world. Now understand, when we are talking about the world, we're talking about the world's system. We know that God loves the world and gave His Son for the world, so we're talking about the world's system. I oftentimes hear people say, why have we become so partisan? Why is it that we can't get along today? Now this is my opinion there are two world views that we have allowed to mature within our country. One is a scriptural worldview, and the other is an unscriptural worldview. Now, folks, those views are not compatible. Therefore, there cannot be compromise from either one of them. They are competing worldviews. One is going to win, one is going to lose. So Jesus then speaks to us and warns us about the world system. There are two areas. First of all, he said there is the temptation to love the world. That's what we're going to look at today. And secondly, there is the temptation to fear the world. That's what we're going to look at next week. Now take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse number 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, Jesus begins here by mentioning two treasures that entice us. First of all, there is earthly treasure. I read a study that was done that said the average American spends 80% of their waking hours making money, spending money, or worrying about money. Now, I don't know about you, but that was fairly astounding to me. That we spend 80% of our waking hours focusing on making money, spending money, or worrying about money. Now, that was also an issue during the time of Christ. In fact, there were three primary sources of wealth in Palestine at that time. First of all was clothing. Now, unlike today, clothing back then was considered a commodity. It was an investment. It was a place to put one's treasure. 
I can give you an example of that. You might recall in the Old Testament about Naaman who had uh, leprosy. He came to Elisha for healing. Elisha healed him as he told him to dip in the Jordan waters. After that was over, then Naaman said to Elisha, What can I give you to show my appreciation? Elisha said, Nothing. I don't want anything. So he left, went on his way. Gehazi, who was the servant of Elisha, sneaked out and went to Naaman and said, The master's changed his mind, and he would like something. And Naaman said, What would he like? He said, A talent of silver and two changes of clothes. So one of the things you have to understand is that clothing back then was a commodity. It was a treasure. Secondly, there was grain. That was another commodity. One commentator wrote, In the East, many a man's wealth consisted in the corn and the grain that he had stored away in his great barns. And then the third commodity was gold. Then, as now, gold was considered to be an important commodity. So, Jesus says, He gives us a warning about wealth, our relationship to wealth. Now, look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. The warning is that we can accumulate wealth, but then we can lose it. The writer of Proverbs gave the same warning. In Proverbs 23, 5, he wrote, For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heaven. Isn't that true? I mean, you spend 80% of your waking hours trying to accumulate, spend, worrying about money. You get some money and then it's gone. You've lost it. It flies away. Linda and I have been talking recently. There are some things we have that have been important to us. We would say that they are treasures to us, things that we have accumulated. And you know, as I have begun to think about it, my children come to the house and I say, well, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? You know what I've realized? Those things that have been treasures to us that we have accumulated, they're going to sell in a garage sale when I'm dead. (laughs) Because they don't care. They're not treasures to them. And that's what the Bible says. Be careful when you are enticed by this world's treasure... Because they're going to fly away. They wear out. Now, clothing, you can, you can get uh, Bill Owings to make you a custom suit. And as nice as it is, it's still going to wear out. I, I used to have a pair of shoes. I really liked them. They were cold hot. I just wore them everywhere. In fact, I wore them out. And then I used them to walk my dog with. Because I liked those shoes. They were really good shoes. I really liked them. Then after a while, in walking the dog, the sole began to come loose from the top. And then as time goes by, Linda gets where she was embarrassed to walk with me because the top of them and the seam, you know, that goes around there in the top, it came loose, my toes sticking out. (laughs) The neighbors started making fun of me, and one day I came home and Linda had thrown them away. Well, that's what happens to these things. See, we can invest in all of these things, but they are going to wear out. That's what he says. It will rust. He wrote, Burns, the poet, wrote, Pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower. Its bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. And Jesus warns that the treasures of this earth 
Thieves can break in and steal. Now, understand at that time in Palestine that a house was made out of baked clay. And someone could chisel into that house and steal the treasure. So he is telling us, giving us a warning about earthly treasures. But then he says, but you can also invest in heavenly treasures. Look at verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. The point that he is making is that if you invest in spiritual or heavenly treasures, he says they are permanent. You don't lose those, but what are they? What are heavenly treasures? Now, I know that, that uh, you would want to invest in heavenly treasures, but what are they? Well, one is kindness. The Jew said that the deeds of kindness which a man did upon earth became his treasure in heaven. Isn't that good? The kindness that you show to others is a treasure in heaven, according to the Jew. The development of character. Michael Luke wrote, the Bible clearly teaches us that if we want to lay up treasure in heaven, one of the best investment strategies is personal character development. You want to invest in heaven? Then develop a godly character. Something else that is a heavenly treasure is souls. Folks, when you witness to another person, you lead another person to faith in Jesus Christ, do you understand that that person will go to heaven to spend all of eternity? That that's something that will never be lost? That person will be forever in heaven? And the Bible says that our heavenly treasures are protected by God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Peter wrote to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Jesus here says there are two treasures. You can invest in either one. You can invest in earthly treasure, but understand they are temporary. You can invest in heavenly treasure, and he says they are permanent. So there are two treasures. Then he says there are two visions. Look at verse number 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now it's interesting to me within the context of this that Jesus is connecting materialism to vision. You see that? He talks first of all about materialism and then he connects it to vision. Well, that's the way commercials work. We want what we see. So they show us these things because we want what we see. In fact, this morning in my devotion time, I came across a verse of Scripture in Proverbs 27:20. 20. It says, Nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Isn't that true? Our eyes are never satisfied. The point that Jesus is making here is that our vision can become distorted. When we look at the world, our vision can become distorted. And understand this is a child's picture. It is the idea of the window be, or the eye being a window, and you're looking at the world out this window. 
Barclay wrote, If the window is clear, clean, and undistorted, the light will come flooding into the room. If the glass of the window is colored or frosted, distorted, dirty, or obscure, the light will be hindered and the room will not be lit up. So the point that Jesus is making to us is that our vision can be distorted. Now, what causes our vision to be distorted? Well, one thing is prejudice. Prejudice causes us to have a distorted vision towards other people. You know that Reverend Jackson over at the Brooklyn Baptist Church and I are, are best friends. I mean, I, I, I love him as a brother in Christ. And I think I mentioned to you that he said to me on one occasion, I would like for us to look at issues and I would say to you as a black man sees it, and I want to tell you how a black person sees it, and I want you to say as a white man sees it, and I want you to tell me how a white person sees it. You know what we discovered is that because of our experiences and so forth, we look at things very differently. See, what happens is that because of our experiences and so forth, our vision towards other people can be distorted because they have an experience that is different from ours. So prejudice then can distort our vision, not only in race, but also in science. When Sir James Simpson discovered the virtues of chloroform, he had to fight prejudice. In fact, his biographer wrote, Prejudice, the crippling determination to walk only in time-worn paths and to eschew new ways, rose up against it and did their best to smother the newfound blessing. Science today is still victimized by prejudice. For instance, many in the scientific community will not consider the possibility that God created this world, as the Scripture says. Why is that? Is it because it has been studied and refuted? No. Is it because it's not a possibility? No. Then why? Because of prejudice. You see, prejudice distorts our vision. It also distorts our vision concerning religion. I know that there are, you know, there are people who look at we who are conservative Christians and they're scared to death of you. I mean, they think you have snakes running around the pews and so forth. And so they don't listen to the message that we might share because of prejudice. Something else that can distort our vision is jealousy. Friendships have been destroyed by jealousy. Marriages have been destroyed by jealousy. Something else is self-conceit. Barclay wrote, If a man is convinced of his own surpassing wisdom, he will never be able to realize his own foolishness. And if he is blind to everything except his own virtues, he will never be aware of his own faults. You want a distorted vision? Then become puffed up. I still remember this. It's still tugs at me on occasion when I was a teenager. Uh, to, to, to be candid, I was one of those smart alecks. Uh, I just was. I thought I knew far more than I did. And I still remember my dad saying to my grandfather, if Wendell is half as smart 
when he's 30 as he thinks he is now, he's going to be a genius. <laughs> Self-conceit. Whenever we become puffed up with our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own intelligence, then our vision is distorted. So Jesus warns us that our vision can be distorted, and he says there are two ways of looking at the world, two visions. First of all, in verse number 22, the lamp of the body is the eye, if therefore your eye is clear. Now, the word clear is interesting because it is oftentimes used in Greek to mean generous, to speak of generosity. If your eye is clear... If the person is generous, what is he saying? He is saying that you have a better view of the world. A generous person is able to better understand the world in which he lives. He sees life more clearly. But look at verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That word in the New Testament is often used to speak of grudging or one who is not generous. So this is what Jesus said concerning vision. A generous person is able to better see and understand the world. The person who is grudging or not generous is not. A person who is grudging cannot possibly be happy with himself. Because he has too much envy, too much jealousy concerning other people. And so bitterness and resentment towards others who might have more than he or she does takes away any joy that he will have. The person who is not generous has difficulty in relationship with other people. One commentator said, The man whom all men despise is the man with the miser's heart. And then the person who is not generous can't possibly have a good relationship with the Lord because God is incredibly generous and this person is not. And therefore, it is impossible for that person to have the kind of relationship with God that he should. So he said there are two visions. There is the clear-eyed person who is generous. There is the bad eye who is not generous. Thirdly, he mentions two masters. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, the word serve that is used there literally means to be a slave. Patrick Morley wrote the book, Man in the Mirror. In fact, he spoke to our men a few years ago. But concerning this passage of Scripture, he wrote, He did not say you should not serve God and money. He said that would be a choice of priority. He did not say, you must not serve God and money. That would be a choice of morality. He did say, you cannot serve God and money because that is an impossibility. Two things about the slave in the ancient world. First of all, he had no rights of his own. Barclay wrote, the slave in the eyes of the law was not a person, but a thing. He had absolutely no rights of his own. His master could do with him absolutely as he liked. Understand, in that world, at that time, the slave had no rights. The master could beat him. He could kill him. He could sell him. 
He could do whatever he wanted to do with him because it was his property. The slave had no rights. The slave had no time of his own. Barclay continued, A slave had literally no time, which was his own. Every moment of his life belonged to his master. So, the master then denotes absolute ownership. Do you understand that? When Jesus is talking about no man can serve two masters, he is using the word slave, that means to serve, and the master has absolute ownership. Now, there were two masters, God and mammon. The word mammon is a Hebrew word for material possessions. It was not a bad word. In fact, the rabbi said, Let the mammon of thy neighbor be as dear to thee as thine own. So in the beginning, it was not a bad word. But then it evolved. The word mammon comes from the root word, which means entrusted. It, it, it means to trust something to a bank or to a safe deposit, so it means entrusted. But then it began to evolve into a bad word or bad understanding. Barclay said, as the years went on, mammon came to mean not that which is entrusted, but that in which a man puts his trust. In other words, mammon became a god. Materialism became a god as it is today. In fact, the book, The Day America Told the Truth, I don't know if you've read that or not, but it reveals the value people in the United States puts on materialism. Here they were asked to respond, what would you do for $2 million? Here's the result. 25% said they would abandon their family. 23% would become a prostitute for a week or more. 16% would give up their American citizenship. 16% said they would leave their spouses for $2 million. 7% said they would kill a stranger. 3% would put their children up for adoption. That's what Jesus is warning us about. As we commit our lives to the pursuit of mammon or materialism, then it takes everything from us. Now, let me conclude, and I want to ask you three questions about your relationship to the world. First of all, is God pleased with the way you have gotten your wealth? Whatever it is. You might say, well, I'm not wealthy. It doesn't make any difference. Is God pleased with the way you have gotten the wealth that you have? You see, you can get it by force. You, you can overpower someone and take what is theirs because they're weaker. You can get your wealth by compromising those things that are really important. And, folks, I see this all the time. People compromise their walk with the Lord. People compromise their family. People compromise their values in order to attain wealth. Is God pleased with the way you're getting it. Second question, how do you use it? And there are some people who don't use it at all. In fact, they see the accumulation of wealth as a, 
as an end within itself rather than as a means to an end. It is an end within themselves, and they just like to, uh, to accumulate it. They like to count it. I mean, I have all this money, and they just enjoy having it. But they don't use it for anything. There are other people who use it very selfishly. There are some who use it manipulative. Wealth gives power, and a corrupt man can use his possessions to corrupt others. And then there are others who use their wealth to glorify God. So the question for you then, because this is an important issue, is, is God pleased? How do you use it? What does the Bible say about wealth? Well, first of all, it says it all belongs to Him. The Scripture says in Psalm 50:12, For the world is mine, and all it contains something else is that the Bible teaches us that people are more important than things. Do you really believe that? I remember hearing Barbara Bush speak when she was in Columbia on one occasion. And she said, when we come to the end of life, there is no one who says, I wish I would have spent more time at work. But there are a lot of people who say, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have spent more time with those people who really love me. Wealth is always a subordinate good. You see, I understand this. Wealth is not sin. There are a lot of people today who want to make it sin. It is not. It is a tool that can be used for the cause of Christ, but it is not sin. The love of money is sin. Not money itself. You see, money is spiritual. It is neither spiritual nor is it unspiritual. It's how you use it. That makes it spiritual or unspiritual. Two treasures, earthly and heavenly. Which are you pursuing? If you're pursuing an earthly treasure, the Bible says that it will erode, it will rust. Thieves can break in and steal. In other words, it's temporary. Heavenly treasure, kindness, the development of character. Souls, permanent. God protects it. Two visions. One is generous, and the generous person is able to better understand the world in which he or she lives. One is ungenerous, and their vision is distorted. Two masters, God and mammon. Materialism or God. Who is your master? Our Father and God, as we come to a time of invitation, Lord, I pray that we will consider the words from your word. And I pray that the Holy Spirit might speak to hearts. Father, for those who are living an unscriptural worldview, I pray, Father, that you'll bring them to the Lord Jesus. Father, for those who have never been saved, never come to know Christ, I pray that they might trust you today. But I pray, Lord, your blessings upon this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord, to make him the master of your life. If you've never trusted Christ, would you today? If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. The staff will be here to receive you if you'll come. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing. You come, I'll greet you as you do.